Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget, you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Your internet browsing data is on show for governments, ISPs, or bad actors to see when you fail to use a VPN to protect yourself. So why not try ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You'll be stunned at the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. That's all that turned on and let's make sure it's coming through live just quickly. It is. Okay. Fantastic. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Um, I am very, very privileged today to be joined by uh, Professor Darren uh, Isimoglu of MIT. Welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Happy to be there. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. Um, I lost the video for the second yeah uh, so it's it's really really fantastic to be able to chat to you today man i i cannot express enough um how much i i absolutely loved your book as i was talking about before we started it's uh i was pl- uh, privileged enough yesterday to be able to release my episode with your co-author and uh yeah it's really exciting to have you here to talk about it today so well thank you for saying that and i'm happy to be following in jim's footsteps mm. So uh, why don't you tell us like a little bit about um, where your your thoughts and ideas for this book started to sort of gestate in your mind? Like where where did you start? When did you start thinking about these these ideas? And and when did you decide? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put this together in a book. Well, you know, actually, if you really want to go to the origin story, these were questions that drew me to economics in the first place uh, when I was a high school student coming of age in Turkey you know, wondering, you know, why the country was mired in political instability and military dictatorship, economic problems, poverty, inequality, and, you know, where these came from, how they were connected to each other. And I thought economics was about studying these questions. I went to the University of York in the UK uh, oh, really? to study uh, economics, thinking I was going to get lots of ideas about these questions. Little did I know that that's not what Economists, economists normally worked on, but it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And then once I sort of started working on my PhD at the London School of Economics, I came back to some of these issues. But, you know, really sort of I was in the dark. There wasn't a framework for thinking about them, not much empirical work. And, and then uh, in a conference, I ran into James Robinson, uh, who was 
going through a similar sort of identity crisis uh, as an economist. And we started talking and working on these issues, first on questions of inequality, democracy, redistribution. But then uh, a couple of years after our first work in those areas, we sort of started thinking about, you know, long run determinants of why some nations are poor, some are prosperous, why there are such huge gaps between rich and poor within nations, between nations. And, you know, uh, around the same time, there were uh, other economists and other social scientists interested in these questions, but uh, a lot of the answers were emphasizing things like geography, culture, or policies, but policies in some sense devoid of the institutional political structure that determine these policies. And that's where sort of James and I sort of came in and uh, tried to make some sense of that. And we uh, ganged up with uh, Simon Johnson, another friend of mine, and wrote a couple of papers on long-run economic development. And then, you know, uh, started thinking about putting all of this together. That took another 10 years. And, uh, and, and the outcome was Why Nations Fail, of, of which both James and I are very proud. Of course, it's now dated. It was written more than 10 years ago, but, but still, I'm delighted to hear that intelligent, knowledgeable people such as you are still inspired by the book. Oh, well, I mean, that's a little much to call me intelligent and knowledgeable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I, I can definitely say I, I, I love a well-written book, especially when it's one that um, is, is challenging things that I had maybe suspected um, or understood as like a... I don't want to say old wives' tale of economics, but that um, just the the in uh, I I heard this trope basically through through my whole life that you know that for example the reason that America was so prosperous is because of freedom, and I was just mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? That, that, yeah, that, that, I like, don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I mean, you know, the way that James and I think about that, both in Why Nations Fail and in our subsequent book, The Narrow Corridor, is that freedom is both a basic desire of most humans. The humans don't like being bossed around. They have built norms, traditions, institutions throughout the ages, going back to our foraging ancestors of trying to protect some modicum of freedom. But it's also very important for economic activities, especially in this modern age of technology. Nations are rich today when they can use technology, create technology, improve productivity, and that is very related to uh, freedom of enterprise. But on the other hand, I think it would be a mistake to think that there is a link between you know, an extreme version of freedom and prosperity. I think it's more complicated than that. You know, Jim and I talk of inclusive economic institutions, which includes freedom of businesses to get into whatever line they want, freedom of individuals to decide what to do with their labor, with their, what to do with their skills. But it needs to be embedded in an institutional framework where the state protects people, it protects the weak against the strong, it provides a level playing field, for example, by providing education, infrastructure, regulation. You know, it's not 
enough to say, oh, people are free and therefore large companies such as Google or you know, Standard Oil in the past can do whatever they want. So it is an institutional framework that's at the root of prosperity. And that's normal because, look, you're not going to be able to get rich by just one company or the decisions of a single individual. It's collective intelligence you want. And collective intelligence means you want to harness the skills, ambitions of thousands, millions of people. And that's where institutional framework that bolsters that freedom comes in. Mm. Yeah. So uh, when one of the things that that I was I was really struck by in your book um, was the I had never heard someone or I'd never seen people break it down in terms of the inclusivity of institutions uh, that that was that was something that was like really really new to me in terms of of, of trying to understand exactly what um, what creates. I don't want to say like civilized society, but but do you, do you get what I mean? In that it, it yeah. creates nations that that choose to build things on a multi generational time scale because you know there's enough stability and people believe that the system will continue to work not only for them but for their children and their grandchildren and and like out and beyond that and it was it was so um so interesting for me to to hear you talk about it in terms of the inclusivity of institutions because a lot of people's like critiques of and obviously the we- the the sort of western world as as such is is you know far and away um, far freer than a lot of the rest of the world um, is or has been in the past, but the, they point to like the reasons for like disenfranchisement, uh, disenfranchisement uh, in the the modern day of that like people aren't involved in the political institutions and that they feel that power is very far from them. And and listening to you guys or well reading you talk about this just they like, really put me put put it in perspective for me, like how important that is to the functioning of society, basically. Well, thank you. It's absolutely correct. And indeed, I think our notion of inclusive institutions captures exactly that durable, stable, rule-based order, which nevertheless sort of creates rules that are sort of not just for the benefit of the powerful, but you know the, what, what I would put uh, to, to 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 your consideration is that actually, you know, when sometimes people talk of this sort of free markets, they make it sound like oh that's something that exists naturally. What first of all we we call these not free markets because again free markets has this connotation of free for all wild west which absolutely is not what we have in mind, so we call them inclusive markets, markets bolstered by the right sort of government regulation and services. But but what's remarkable from the point of view of the long durée of history is that how rare these institutions are, even today. What's much more common is the other polar case, which we call extractive institutions, institutions designed for a narrow elite, powerful businesses, powerful politicians, powerful kings, to extract resources from the rest. And extractive institutions are not there throughout history by mistake. They're there by design. 
they've been designed, not perfectly, but they've been designed so that they benefit a small group of people, whatever the consequences are for the rest. And when you look at that uh, from you know, the viewpoint of the last 5,000 years, 10,000 years, for example, that gives a very different perspective about how development has occurred. You know, in some sense, there is a natural process of people investing, generating new ideas when you provide them opportunities, incentives, the right institutional setup, but there's nothing natural about those sorts of institutions coming out. They, they are the result of a long protracted struggle. Hmm. Now, the, the, the word extractive really sprung out at me when I was reading because um, I don't know how familiar you are with the work of um, Naomi Klein. Um, mm-hmm. And she's just like, if I could marry her brain or her prose, <laughs> I would. <laughs> uh, she's she's uh, yeah it's just fantastic especially um no logo and and the shock doctrine but mm-hmm. there's there's this theme that she she's constantly referring to and it's um of uh like an an extractive economy um like in terms of the way we harvest resources and then i read um a fantastic book by carolyn Steele called sitopia in which she mm-hmm. was talking about extractive farming. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I kind of wondered if you felt like there was a, um, a link here because people people have drawn similar connections. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what we wanted to tap into, those ideas. But what we emphasize a little differently than the usual uh, meaning of extractive is that it's not just natural resources or the land that you're extracting from. You're extracting from other people. In most of history, the thing that was most valuable is human labor. It's the control of human labor that's at the center of most extractive institutions. Okay. So uh, would you then say that there's... there's uh, yeah, basically I'm trying to explore the link between the extractive institutions and then the extractive political and economic policies that come out of right. it like do you believe that the the institutions are informing the extractive policies or that the extractive policies are then crafting the institutions both it's a chicken and egg problem but i think the most important thing is you cannot think of these issues without taking politics very seriously making it center stage take you know an example of an extractive institution the apartheid system in South Africa. Mm. You know, it has all the hallmarks of what I'm talking about. Close to 90% of the population are just there to be exploited without any economic rights. They're not even allowed to choose their occupations. They don't get education. They don't get the right to represent themselves in unions or other sorts of civic society organizations. They are heavily discriminated against in every economic aspect of their lives. And in, in, in the earlier days, they were highly coerced. Opportunities are taken away from them, so they become cheap labor. So much so that you know there were these color bars that made it illegal to employ black South Africans in any occupation other than the most skilled, unskilled menial ones. Now think of an economic system like that, that's archetypal extractive. Is that gonna survive if you know black South Africans had political rights and political power. Say, for example, South Africa was a democracy and they could vote. Yeah, sure, perhaps you can fool them for a couple of years, perhaps a decade, 
to keep on voting for economic institutions that impoverish them, that exploit and uh, enslave them almost. But after a while, they're going to say, no, no, we're going to use our political power to tear down these institutions. So the only way that the apartheid economic system could survive was you had an apartheid political system that empowered that very, very narrow elite politically, built a police state, blacks had no voice, no representation, and were repressed at every opportunity. So extractive political institutions that monopolize political power in the hands of a few people are highly synergistic with the extractive economic institutions. And likewise for democracy, you know, look, inclusive economic institutions are not going to survive if you have a supreme party or ruler decreeing everything, like the Chinese Communist Party or a, or, or a king. So you really require some sort of inclusive political arrangement for bolstering inclusive economic arrangements. Mm, okay. So the one of the things I was I was keen to to sort of pick your brain on was was this idea of of creative destruction because I have yeah spent a lot of time um as as someone born and and sort of raised in my my entire adult life has been in the shadow of the 2008 crash which to me was like a a major failure of of politics, uh, institutions, and finance all sort of culminating, and greed as well, really. Yes, but um, Absolutely. So I've been trying to, like, uh, basically the thing that, that confuses me about that specific moment is that normally when we had, like, a big chaotic thing like that happen in the past, what would happen would be the the institutions would step in they would say okay look here's where we went wrong here's what we're going to make sure we do this t the next time here's the rules we're going to put in place and make sure this never happens again basically absolutely and those institutions just just sort of failed in in my mind um they 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 failed to do anything about it they they failed to like push forwards with uh whatever was whatever reforms sh should have been necessary they were like hampered by by yeah institutional capture or corruption or something or just like lack of willingness to want to do something and all of the above yes yeah so uh, and to me i look at the current system and go look we we clearly need some sort of like major reform i don't want to be that guy calling for everything to be torn down because as we've just as we've just as you've sort of discussed the the rarity of democratic institutions is is something that should be recognized so i'm i don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater but at the same time i'm aware that we need to like do something and there needs to be some sort of creative destruction within our system like do you have you thought much about the trying to find the balance in that world in trying to like figure out how to make reforms without just you know casting everything aside that might be good about the system yeah, yeah, I think those are critical questions, and, and, and you're absolutely right. You cannot understand the financial crisis and its aftermath and the inequalities that were, you know, uh, generated before and after the financial crisis without thinking about the atrophying of inclusive institutions in the UK, in the US, in parts of Western Europe quite broadly. And uh, you cannot understand them without, call it institutional capture, corruption, whatever, but the excessive power of Wall Street excessive power of tech companies. I think all of those are clear fault lines of the institutions that have emerged in the West over the last several decades. Now, when economists talk of creative destruction, 
and when James and I talk of creative destruction, first it's at the level of economics. New technologies come and replace others. New firms come and replace others. That's very important. That's the idea that Schumpeter had, and uh, and and it's critical. You know, it's not to be confused with sometimes what Silicon Valley itself labels its own technologies as disruptive, because some of those may actually be disrupting exactly the things that you don't want, like the stability of social communication, democracy. So, so there is a you need to define and you need to worry about the details of that. But also James and I talk about political creative destruction, which is, you know, when is it that we can make reforms both in the economy and in the political domain that disempower some vested interests that have become very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the story as well. I don't think it is possible to make progress on uh, climate change, for example, without reducing the power of big oil today. And it's not possible, in my opinion, to make progress on building a more just society with more individual control over economic careers and autonomy without reducing the power of tech companies. So I think there is an element of political creative destruction, but you're absolutely right. The key question is, you know, within what limits? And I think it is, in my opinion, it's completely off limits to threaten the democratic system. And unfortunately, what we have seen is that the right, the populist right, has been much more successful in channeling that discontent, both in the UK and in the US and in some other countries. And, and people like Boris Johnson, to some extent, much less, but Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, they seriously damage democratic institutions, both the norms of democratic governance and the actual institutions. You know, US institutions, you know, sort of survived, but just barely. Yeah. Look, another four years of Donald Trump don't know it would be much more like a banana republic mm. i mean i i made the case actually to james and he, i'm not sure he was uh particularly sold on this but i feel like that trump has damaged the institutions and norms in a way that, that i am concerned will never be recovered because for example if Malia Obama had taken like millions from some Chinese companies and then her laptop was like had very strange and compromising emails on it, that would be front page for, for just weeks. And then Trump came in, his family just looted the, the presidency. Um, and uh, I've no idea how they didn't impeach him on the emoluments clause. Uh, I, I just, I don't understand. But um, then Joe Biden has come in and it seems like his family are able to get away with a lot of things that would have been frowned upon previously because Trump, because it's like, oh, well, it's not as bad as Trump. And it, it's like slowly edging us away from, from the norms that would have dominated the... Look, I, I, think, yeah. I think you are 99% right. Uh, I think... Trump has damaged institutions and norms greatly. And you see that today. I mean, in the US, it's this degree of polarization that prevents even the most important branch of the government when it comes to such things, the, co the Congress, from investigating a coup attempt during January 6th 
you know, that is an outcome of the atrophying of these norms and institutions. On the other hand, I wouldn't say never. That's where I would, you know, perhaps be a little bit more, uh, slightly more optimistic than you. I think, you know, uh, institutions have a way of rebuilding them anywhere. There's a lot of agency. You can destroy them and you can rebuild them. And throughout, a, you know, the last 300 years, U.S. institutions, I, you can say a lot of bad things about them. But one good thing is their flexibility. They have been able to recreate themselves to deal with some pretty nasty mm. conditions, like during the progressive era or before the progressive era when companies, the robber barons and, and their companies uh, and uh, their political representatives in the Senate uh, and local governments became amazingly powerful and really destroyed or came close to destroying some important aspects of inclusivity, the system did a 180-degree U-turn. Civil rights era, I don't know of many other institutions, many other countries that have been able to provide a peaceful sort of way out of such deep discrimination against a significant fraction of the population. So, I mean, you know, of course, things are still not good for Black Americans. There are a lot of problems, but civil rights is a monumental achievement. And again, it shows the ability of U.S. institutions to allow new coalitions to emerge uh, and, and, and forge things uh, in a way that is much healthier. Now, today, I don't see how that's going to happen, but I'm not giving up hope. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that was that was basically my next point is that um I but again, I guess if you were um the in America pre the you know um oh what is his name Roosevelt's trust busting mm -hmm. and uh before the civil rights movement um even maybe 18 months before either, either of those things like that there was real real movement on them at, at like a a, mm -hmm. an institutional level that you if you turn around and said hey well that's not gonna happen don't be so stupid you know what sort of world are you living in you dreamer um <laughs> would have been the response so uh, as 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 pessimistic as i i can be at times about the world it's also uh, we're probably all sort of guilty of imagining that this is this is it do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like all of us are secretly well, I waiting think for both, the end of both the world. are problematic. I mean, you know, and we, we commit both mistakes at the same time sometimes. You know, there is a, you know, we, 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 as humans, we depend on hope. If we lose hope, we're doomed. And, and that sometimes fools us. Like, oh, you know, things are not so bad on the climate change front. I think, you know, people have left action on climate change too late. And it's really an existential threat against humanity. Hmm. So, yeah, we have to really take that seriously. But on the other hand, that's right. I think, you know, when we are in the midst of a crisis, a really terrible period, that's that's also so, so hard to see how things can change. You know, 18 or months ago or two years ago, you know, U.S. is committed to not taking any action against climate change. Institutions are sliding Trump is controlling, you know, uh, pretty much all of government and appointing Supreme Court justices uh, of his own, uh, you know, uh, narrow line. And, and, you know, things would have looked very, very, very terrible. And today, 
it's not guaranteed, but you know, if you look at the uh, Democrats' agenda, it's really unbelievable from the vantage point of two years ago. An in- increase in the minimum wage in the U.S. to $15, an infrastructural bill, very, very meaningful climate change action. All of it may come tumbling down, but at least we've come very close to, you know, is it perfect? Absolutely not. There are some important elements that I would say we need that are not there, but 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 completely transformative from the viewpoint of two years ago. Mm. Yeah, that was that was actually something I remember pointing out in the in the 2019 Democratic primaries to to some people that was uh, said, look, look at Bernie Sanders' agenda in 2016, and look at all of the major Democratic candidates now. Is like all of those things are on there. Like all the 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 things that people said were a a pipe dream and impossible, and you know the Democratic Party could never support this. All of those things then ended up on the, the, the you know, the, on their platform. I mean, it, right. it remains to be seen how much of it they follow right. through with. Right. But at least it was them saying, hey, we're going to do this. And it gives people something to, to hold to. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely. I mean, I, I would say there's still some elements of Sanders' agenda that are not there that important. The healthcare being the most important one okay, yeah, and, and, and more meaningful antitrust against big tech, for example. But. All else being equal, I think we are much better off when it's a broad coalition builder like Biden trying to push those things rather than Sanders, who, you know, declares himself to be a democratic socialist, which would have been a showstopper in the United States uh, in terms of building coalitions. So so I think uh, that is the distinction between blowing up the institutions and working within institutions. You know, sometimes, you know, we all want uh, rotten institutions to be blown up, but but I think when you can work within institutions, there is greater degree of success and less likelihood of really bad backlash sometimes. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I think you're probably right there. Uh, so one of the one of the ideas that I've come across, and it, it it sort of seemed to me to intertwine at least a little bit with um, some of the work you've been doing. No, you t- maybe not. Maybe you think I'm crazy with this, but um, the. I don't know if you're familiar with the with the book The Fourth Turning. Um, that I don't know. No, I haven't. Okay, so it. so uh, it was written in the 1980s, and it's been largely sort of brushed off as being like pseudo science of history. But essentially, the argument that the guys are making, and I, you know, whilst I don't believe it specifically, I quite I quite enjoy the the sort of broad strokes of what they're trying to say is that like basically they're saying that every 80 to 100 years like humans go are going through like cycles of basically it boils down to like trust in institutions and that you get like a big crisis and then then everything gets rebuilt and then there's like entropy and trust degrades down to uh to the next crisis and then you know everything gets rebuilt and people buy into it again and they basically suggested that um, they said about 30 years ago that in 2025, they estimated we'd be hitting the end of our current cycle in their model, at least anyway. And wow, that sounds that sounds very prescient. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, should, uh, I, should, I should have a look at it. <laughs> but, you know, I think this argument is, is sometimes made by some social scientists. I think the, the, the most cogent, interesting version is by the historian Walter Scheidel. In his uh, in, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, 
oh God, I now forget the name of the book, but his, you know, it's a monumental book arguing, you know, uh, you need big shocks such as wars, uh, famines, uh, big demographic disasters to sort of right the wrongs, especially inequality. And I think, A, it's too pessimistic. And B, it really ignores what the costs of these big, big, big turnarounds are, whatever they are, revolutions, wars, they're highly costly. And if you look at the more successful institution building examples, they are the ones that actually avoid them. You know, uh, one of the greatest institutional innovations of recent human past is to build of the wealth, the building of the welfare state. Well, you know, it, it, it didn't come out of, you know, carnage, sure, European uh, poverty and problems after World War II contributed to it, but, but actually the prototype uh, welfare state institutions were developed in Scandinavia in the 1930s uh, in response to the Great Depression. And in fact, uh, thanks to them, uh, Swedes and Norwegians avoided some of the worst of the Great Depression. Uh, the beverage report uh, in the UK, you know, was came out in 1942, before the worst of World War II, in some sense. Uh, so, and 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 I think uh, these ideas could have actually even been adopted even earlier. There were people who were advocating them even earlier. So, so I think we have ways of dealing with crises, both economic and political inequalities. But we need, we need to build new institutions. We need to strengthen existing institutions, build new institutions, especially as the conditions, the sources of inequality change. We live in a much more globalized world today, in a world of much different technologies than the 1930s. And of course, we need somewhat different welfare state institutions than were developed at the time. Mm. So there's the, the two of the concepts that you write about, and I really like the way it was described, was the this... The vicious cycle versus the the or sorry the vicious circle versus the virtuous circle here, mm-hmm. um, and I basically wanted to know what you felt the best, or well, the most efficient way, or like yeah, the best way to to both break the vicious circle and to encourage the virtuous one. Like if you were to say to a nation go ahead and just um you know do do your thing um what is the best thing that you could say to them to say right we're going to break this vicious cycle we've been on of institutions degrading and we're going to move forwards to um a more virtuous inclusive one like what is the, the yeah so i mean i think wedge? i think thanks for raising that i think it's very much connects to what we were just talking about uh first of all as we started uh with at the beginning you know, vicious circles are in the nature of things because political and economic institutions support each other. The, the richer you become, the more politically powerful you become, the politically more powerful you'll become, the more you can have your way and, 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 and tilt the playing field to your favor. That's exactly what we are seeing with large companies in the United States or in, in Europe today. Uh, but it also points out how you can break those circles because if we start building better 
institutional checks against economic power or ways of restraining political excessive political power, it will have a multiplier effect. And, and I think, again, we come back to gradual versus radical changes. I am completely open to the idea that sometimes we need radical changes. You know, perhaps you would not have been able to break the control of the Stuart monarchs in, uh, in 17th century England without the English Civil War or the one in, 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 in France without the French Revolution. I don't know. But the problem with radical change is that it often backfires or it creates what James and I call the iron law of oligarchy after the German sociologist or German-Italian sociologist Robert Michaels. Uh, <clears throat> a new oligarchy comes up under the excuse of replacing the old one and becomes even more vicious. Just look at the Bolshevik revolution. So yeah. I think today we have to find ways of breaking those vicious circles, which sometimes requires very decisive action and major institutional reform, but without completely destroying the system. Blowing up the system, I think, is too dangerous at the best of times and certainly today. Hmm. So, uh, and in fact, in some sense, that's why the populist right is the worst of both worlds. They are maintaining the most inequitable parts of the system, but blowing up uh, lots of elements of the system as well. So, uh, <clears throat> so, so I think, I think, a reform agenda is critical, and and a reform agenda needs to be based on an understanding of what you want to change. You need greater voice for regular people in politics, but at the same time, you need to strengthen the guardrails that make an institutional democracy work. And you need much, much better help for people to succeed, succeed economically. I, in my opinion, that might take us in different directions, but that means you know, rethinking what we want from technology, not just automation, not just uh, control of data, but technologies that empower people mm. yeah yeah that's 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 very much in like the we're a weird point i think in in history with with technology in that we are very rapidly approaching this like apex where there is a, a concentration of power and wealth um in the the tech industries like very yeah to, yeah to, we're already there the only thing i would d dispute is that it's an apex Mm, it's oh. not an apex, meaning that, you know, we are told that it's an apex in terms of this is like an amazing technological achievement. Actually, I, when you look at the way that we are using our collective knowledge in many things, it's actually pretty uh, disappointing. Like what? I mean, you know, what are we going to get out of this amazing technological investments? Better facial recognition cameras? I mean, what human good will come out of that? other than just much greater monitoring of individuals by corporations and governments. Mm. Or, you know, is like the, uh, the apex of our technological achievements is that when we have a problem, rather than talking to a human, we talk to an automated system that never gets what we are actually are about. <laughs> you know, is that, is that the apex of our achievements? Mm. So I think a lot of what we are doing with this technology is actually pretty, uh, pretty disappointing. But it generates a lot of profits for a small number of companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, when I, I used to see, I don't know, it must have been maybe five years ago when I was writing my first book about, about Brexit and social media. 
and I, I kept seeing all these headlines. There's like data is the new oil. And it took me so long to really understand that it's like, that's not just a catchphrase. It is literally the most valuable thing in the world right now. So, <laughs> um, and, and we've decided, yeah, to use it for um, sort of quite predatory advertising purposes. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think I would say it's more data is more like the new opioids in the sense that, you know, uh, oil, you know, at the time when people were writing it, our civilization absolutely depended on it. Sure. We now regret some of that because of the pollution and the climate change, but mm. you could not imagine in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, industrialization and prosperity in the West without oil. Well, you know, I think I can very well imagine prosperity in the 21st century without such extensive use of data, but we've become addicted to it. Yeah, the data the data thing is difficult for me because like there is as uh, we can be very disappointed with like what we've done with the technology, but there is still so much utility that could come from the amount of you know data that we have. Like it it can it could it could teach us so much about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in the future, absolutely, we might find better ways of using data in a way that. Mm, preserves citizen and consumer sovereignty and individual power. And still we can use data for better detection of cancer and mm. a better building a better electricity grid. But most of the things we are monetizing data for is not that, mm. you know, it's ads. Yeah. And it's, you know, social media uh, hooking people onto into their filter bubbles and, and, and enraging to the other side. As a result, you get more attention to the ads that you see. I mean, I, again, I don't think that's a super useful way of using our economic and intellectual resources. Mm, yeah, probably not. Now, um, I know you've talked a little bit about this because um, James had mentioned your book, The Narrow Corridor. So that's next on my reading list um, after Why Nations Fail. So the there's... I am trying to figure out how we walk this line at the minute, especially because there's a lot of debates going on about sort of freedom and, and uh, human rights and, you know, what can a government can or can't do? And, you know, is it justified? Is it legal? These sorts of things. But I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, really trying to figure out where this like sweet spot lies in terms of, you know, the positive utility of the state and of state power to you know spend money borrow invest well look look i mean i think we're completely right to ask because i don't know the answer but i think it's the <laughs> right question to ask if you asked me four years ago what do i feel about the u.s government or the chinese government or the british government having data on who you come to contact with during the day and monitoring that i would have been enraged hmm. but today i actually think that's a fantastic idea in order to combat the pandemic, but with a big, 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 big caveat. We also need much better institutional guardrails against that information being misused. Mm. We need to make, in the terminology of the narrow corridor, the Leviathan even more shackled if we're gonna let the Leviathan have that data. Mm. That's a really great phrase. You've made me more but, excited to read But you know, But the, board, the broader point here I'm making is that 
as the conditions we are confronted with change, we have to reevaluate what is the right balance between individual freedom, state control, state capacity, state reach. And, and the pandemic was a completely unexpected one in some sense, although perhaps we should have expected it. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, Bill Gates have been predicting it for 10 years. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like Peter Schiff. He's constantly saying, you know, we're there's an economic, you know, the economy is about to crash. And it's like, eventually you're going to be right. right. <laughs> so th this is one of the things I've been been really like interested in. So you talked there about like, like trying to put in, in place like new institutional guardrails and, and really watch how the state uses the power and to ensure that they then give it back, basically, once exactly. the, the crisis has passed. And I'm, I've been trying to figure out some mechanism by which we are able to have not the people who are currently in power, but the people in the you know the broadest sense of the term, um, like not not to to try and renew our our collective faith in institutions, and yeah. uh, because and in the in America perhaps it would take some form of constitutional convention but then i don't even know how we get how you get people in the same room anymore uh, and and the same thing in in britain in that we we don't really even have something that like as as obvious as a constitutional convention our our entire like system of government has been made up basically of like precedent common law tradition and little bits and pieces added here and there in legislation it's very much sort of stumbling through into democracy but i don't know how we like renew that well i think we are actually going through an interesting experiment right now in chile Chile is a traditionally very unequal country, both economically and socially. You know, there is a very well-defined group of privileged people uh, that control politics and the economy. And it's been a source of conflict and, and discontent. And right now they are in the process of rewriting a constitution in a convention that brings students, journalists, business people, jurists, lawyers, professors together, let's see what's gonna happen. I think in the best case scenario, that process itself, both symbolically and in reality is going to empower people and will lead to a much more legitimate new constitution than just a small group of politicians or legal scholars writing a new constitutions and throwing it on top of the people as if, you know, as mana from heaven. So, so let's see. If Chile succeeds, you know, perhaps the UK can, and if the UK can, perhaps the US can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm never short of of you know trying to be hopeful. Uh, <laughs> it just it, well, it depends which day you get me on. But <laughs> the the one of the examples actually. So I mentioned this to to James as well, and one of the examples that he brought up was the the South African post-apartheid uh, or the the constitution reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly the, and I went back and looked at Naomi Klein's um, coverage of this in the Shock Doctrine, and was a little less sort of enthused by it um, because he'd sort of pointed put it up as this like example of when you know all sides came together for the betterment, and obviously there was a lot of like good things that came out of that, but it also 
from what I, yeah, again, just from reading Naomi Klein's book, she feels that they were robbed in a way by a combination of like the, the Chicago boys international economic team from like, yeah, through the, the IMF and, and the world bank. And uh, yeah, I think that's a little uncharitable. I mean, you know, every thing of the sort of a truth and reconciliation commission will have to make compromises. Mm. I mean, that's exactly what it's about. It's about, forgiving uh, or at least tolerating some old sins. And, and it was very symbolic. And sure, uh, it did not involve wholesale redistribution of assets from whites to blacks. But had it done so, the whole apartheid project would have collapsed. Mm. Apartheid, sorry, sorry post-apartheid project, whole democratization process would have collapsed. Mm. The apartheid regime uh, did not survive in part because many of the white businesses jumped ship and they jumped ship because Mandela and uh, sort of uh, the reformist wing of the ANC promised no wholesale redistribution, no recriminations, uh, no post-transition huge conflict. And that's exactly what the Truth and Reconciliation commissions delivered were they perfect no but but i think you really have to take your hat off to such an enormous transition that took place peacefully it's amazing and sure of course it got really corrupted by zuma mm. and and we're, we're 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 living sort of through the process of recreating some of those institutions after zuma's uh jacob zuma's sort of Trumpesque rule, as corrupt and as vicious as Trump in some ways, mm. but it was very symbolic, and I think it's very inspiring. And I, I, I'm really the trouble when people dump on it because I think uh, there we have a lot to learn from that process in other countries. I think you know there are so many other conflicts around the world where you know a modicum of that sort of spirit, or the spirit that Nelson Mandela brought when. Mm. You know, he embraced uh, the Springboks and uh, and and uh, the, the the hated symbol of the apartheid regime in the eyes, rightly, of Black South Africans. You know, as a symbol, a gesture of unity. I think that is that is the sort of thing that we really need more around the world. Mm, yeah, that's a really inspiring way of looking at it. I mean, I'm I'm no I'm no stranger to post clump. Uh, conflict societies coming from absolutely Northern ireland um i can imagine <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah well you see i mean i still i still walk past it. people people would come here and, and and come to be like oh look at all the symbols of the troubles and i just sort of look, walk past them like it's just you know that's just belfast that's normal <laughs> um, uh, and then some of them that people point out as like quite visceral reminders tend to be quite touching to me in a way because they yeah they're they're yeah memorials of people who who died and in, in yeah a struggle that i don't think anyone really wanted um apart from yeah that those in the very fringes but um yeah i'll not i'll not get i'll not drag you into talking about about northern ireland here <laughs> so the last well thing, we've covered a lot so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we've been on a on a on a ride but you know that's that's what this uh that's what i love about podcasts man um so the the last thing I wanted to ask about was uh, 
basically the towards the end of the book you you talk a little bit about about foreign aid and um why it doesn't quite work in the way that we had envisioned and essentially i see uh there's a lot of talk um especially uh since both britain and america have gone cutting their their foreign aid budgets um which is uh, silly in my mind given how little it actually is but um the there's a lot of idea that that with foreign aid we're sort of just you know giving countries money and they're going to use it really wisely um and you kind of point out that that's not always the case um so so do you want to do you want to explain yeah yeah so i think that's that a great is? question to end on quite a great great uh conclusion because you know i think it symbolizes the balances and the difficulties that we're talking about uh, yeah absolutely i i'm completely with you uh the west both morally and and otherwise owes the developing world to help it more so i think for us to cut both the aid budget and our commitment to end poverty around the world is is terrible is callous but foreign aid as a system is also quite defective first it's based on the wrong diagnosis that somehow the problem in the developing world is like lack of bridges and uh, resources to invest in no our emphasis throughout by nations fail and we talked about it today is an institutional problem so you have to solve the institutional problems and second you know if you look at how foreign aid money gets used you know it's created a complex an international complex of foreign aid uh you know uh most of it in europe or the us uh some of it in ngos and and other things and and it's it is not the right way to use the resources and it's not the right way to help the uh the developing world but absolutely i think we need to find ways of helping uh helping the developing world build better institutions and use resources more wisely that's a collective responsibility on the one hand but on the other hand i also hasten to add that at the end of the day foreigners only can meddle so much the more they meddle the worse it does its domestic institutions are influenced by international factors are influenced by international capital by the cia but and by the chinese communist party but at the end of the day domestic institutions are built and maintained by people in those countries and they have to play the leading role we have to find ways of helping them providing resources for them when needed but not within the sort of the framework of the foreign aid complex as it has developed at the moment mm. so what would you say that the the best way to <clears throat> to essentially try and foster prosperity in other nations would be so say say someone sitting in california or london and they're thinking you know what there's i'd like to help x african country like ghana or uganda or or somewhere like that and they think okay or somewhere in latin america maybe or southeast asia well what? you know make technology available make opportunities available allow them to sell their products uh internationally we we talk of helping africa and very few african firms or people can actually export what they produce to the us or to europe we are very keen on 
trade openness, that means our banks going and investing there, but we don't allow these people to actually have the opportunities that they should really have. And we guard our technologies. We uh, charge huge amounts if we're going to provide them with uh, machines or, or, or other services. So I think there is a lot that can be done. But at the end of the day, again, we also have to encourage them to build better institutions. And that's not an easy process. You know, the West going and lecturing other countries to build democracy doesn't work. Uh, exporting democracy at Bayonet doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, we've learned that, you know, badly done, albeit, but we've learned that in Afghanistan and Iraq. So, you know, at the end of the day, we also have need to have some humility. Hmm. That's a really nice, nice way to, to end things then. So have some thank you, Josh. Um, Professor Esamoglu, uh, Esamoglu, that's a mouthful for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I really, really want to thank you for your time. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure to be able to chat to you. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to, to pick your brain on some of these issues. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Is there anything you want to plug before before we go here? No, perfect. Thanks. It's great, it's great talking to you, Josh. Thank you for having me on your program. No problem. Um, so yeah, everyone check out the book. I'll put the link in the description below. Thank you.